Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I am joined today by Josephine Perry, a chartered psychologist and founder of Performance in Mind, which is a sports and performance psychology consultancy based here in London. She works with people in sport, on the stage and from high performance professions to help them overcome their barriers to success so that they can achieve their goals. Josephine is very experienced when it comes to behavior change and communication, having worked for many years in journalism, marketing, public relations, and crisis communications. She has three MSCs, one of them being in sports and exercise psychology. And to top it off, she has a PhD in political communications. She is regularly quoted in the media on how professionals in all arenas, not just sports, can use applied sports psychology to enhance their performance. So it is wonderful to have you on the show, Josie. There is so much that we can learn from you as a psychologist that can help us to perform better in other areas of our lives. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it is really my pleasure that you could be here today. So I've seen from my life that my mindset towards sports and exercise bleeds over into my professional life. So I think this will help all kinds of people who are, you know, entrepreneurs or clinicians or students even. And I think that this conversation will give them real tools to actually carve their own path, which is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast. And although we qualify in sport and exercise psychology, and that's kind of our specialism, probably half my clients are not athletes. I work a huge amount with medics, uh, with entrepreneurs, with people on the stage, because all the skills that we use to help people in sport, they translate brilliantly to any other part of life. And May tends to be working with students who are panicking about exams and how we prepare them for the kind of performance anxiety before you go into exams. Um, Working a lot with paramedics going through OSCEs um, or or doctors all over the world trying to get kind of to consultant level. So a lot of the tools we use are really, really transferable. Amazing. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, really. Um, You've talked about some of the different types of people that you're helping, but what are some of the applications, the specific applications? Because I know you have a kind of interest in performance anxiety specifically. Um, Are there other kind of applications that people typically associate with sports psychology that really help other types of people, including clinicians and such? Two areas I tend to see most is that performance anxiety bit. And that could be having a big competition, but I've also worked with grooms who want to do a brilliant speech at their wedding. Um, I work a lot with sommeliers, um, so wine tasters, because the physiological response to anxiety is that you lose some of your senses. If you're trying to taste wine, particularly in a competition or an exam, and you can no longer taste or smell, there's no way you can do it. So it's really, really important that you get a handle on that anxiety. Um, so yeah, I work on that side, probably about 70, 80% of what I do. And then the other side is actually when people just are lacking motivation. 
They're like, I really want to be able to do this. And I can't get off the sofa to go and do it. Or they're actually elite athletes and they're just trying to get that little bit extra out of themselves. There is that voice in the head that's trying to protect them very rationally, very sensibly to stay in their comfort zone. It's not good for us physically sometimes to push ourselves to the level that we might need to in order to get the very, very best of ourselves. So an elite athlete that's having to really, really push to do that extra rep on the track when actually their brain's going, oh, you could get injured right now. And they've got that kind of constant um, argument going on in their head. So it's not that they're not motivated, but it's that they're trying to stay safe. So those tend to be the areas that I work in most. I want to ask you a little bit more about you, about your story in particular, because you have a really interesting story of how you became a sports psychologist. And I think that if you could tell this story, I think it will really explain why it's such an important, important, amazing field. So can you share your journey and some of the influences that you've had that have led you here? I mean, sports psychology didn't exist really when I left university. So it was, and I wasn't a sporty kid. I spent most of my time at, at dance school doing I was a proper stage school brat with kind of the leggings and the jazz hands. <laughs> um, so I went into journalism when I was finishing my undergrad and during my master's. And then I moved into communications. So I really loved crisis comms. I loved that kind of drama element. Um, but I was also doing kind of big marketing campaigns and advertising campaigns. I worked um, in government. And then my last um, big job was for a health charity. And I was also doing triathlon was my sport, still is my sport. It's 20 years this year. And my husband and I went over to Melbourne. He's Australian. So we went back to his country to do a race, um, the Melbourne Ironman. And it starts on a beach in a place called Frankston. And we'd swum in the sea the day before the race. And it was lovely. And the morning of the race, I just remember standing on Frankston Beach and the waves looked horrific. Even my Aussie husband was like, mm, I'm not sure about this. And they cut the swim short because they were like, oh, this isn't safe. And um, they still made us get in and do quite a long distance. I was really nervous, really scared. And the guy on the tannoy, I remember him saying when I was in transition, sorting out my bike, was, guys, you can't control those waves. You can control how you feel about them. And it was genuinely the first time that I'd gone, oh my God, I'm not sporty. I still don't think of myself as sporty. I didn't feel like an athlete type person, but I do have a good brain. If I used my brain more in my sport, I could be better at it. And it was proper light bulb moment, standing in transition, listening to that going, okay, let's use my brain to do this. And I did get in the water and I did do that swim. Goodness knows where I came out. I ended up running miles down a beach to try and get back to, to be in this race. Um, but I had a great race. It was my fastest Ironman. When I got back to the UK, I really started thinking about that. And I, there weren't that many books then either. Um, and I was like, okay, let's, let's see what this is about. And I wasn't enjoying my job at all. Um, and so I was able to leave with some money to go and do something else. And I had about, my husband had suggested having a, um, a gap year because I never had a gap year after school. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And about two hours into my gap year, I was like, okay, I'm bored. What do I do? Um, so I signed up for an, a master's in psychology conversion course. 
Um, and thought, well, I can always go back into communications if I want to, because if you understand behavior change, you'll be a much better communicator. So it, it felt like a really sensible, safe decision to make. Um, and I enjoyed it. And then I realized if you did want to be a sports psychologist, you needed to do another master's and that needed to be in sport and exercise psychology. So I signed up for that. And then I discovered that actually to be a sports psychologist is another three years training on top of that, super fun to practice. So I was kind of in by then. So I was like, okay, let's go for this. And that was five years ago I finished, five, six years ago now. Um, so you can work while you're training, but you have a supervisor. And to be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. So it's, it's gradually grown and grown and grown. Wow, that's incredible. It's, and it's, it's so true. We, we can never control the conditions that, that we're in, right? And that's why it's so important. We realize that we can think about these things rather than just accept the emotions or the feelings that we have. We can logically kind of get ourselves into a state that will help us to perform the best that we can, right? So yeah, I, I, really, I love that kind of element of just, um, I, I don't know, I don't want to say control, but maybe it is control. I suppose I, I've often felt myself that I, I wish I had more um, of a handle on the way that I could react in different situations and and really practice and get myself into a state that, you know, I've, I feel that I'm doing my best every single time, or at least I'm pushing for that every time. So um, really interesting. I often try when I'm working with clients to move away from that word react. So react is fast and it's pretty emotional and often it comes from our threat system, particularly if we feel out of control. Not feeling in control is a huge threat for many of us. Um, and, and the whole work that we do is moving away from reaction and towards response. We don't want to react to things, we want to respond. Responding is much slower and thoughtful and with a good quality decision behind it. And so a lot of that is about a real distancing from our thoughts. And so it's spending a lot of time practicing when we notice something that our brain is telling us. It is not a fact. Most of the time it is a thought. And I keep seeing different pieces of research on this, but I've seen that we have up to 100,000 thoughts a day. Most of them are not facts. They're just our brain trying different things on for size whilst it's trying to figure out how to handle something or deal with it or how would we do this? When we can really, instead of trying to block out the unhelpful thoughts that we have, when we tune into them, we can get really curious. And then it's like, oh, why am I thinking that? Why has this person annoyed me so much? What's going on with me right now that means I've reacted in that way? I don't want to react in that way. I want to respond. I want to be more thoughtful about it. What are the facts here? You get a really nice distance between them that stops us overreacting to everything. That's, yeah, very powerful. Just that kind of separation. I think that's probably one of the better lessons I've had as an adult that actually you are not your thoughts <laughs> and you're not, you're not even really your feelings either. Your personality is not necessarily as fixed as you think it might be actually. And we are a lot more flexible than, than we first imagined that we are, which actually, I guess, moves on to a question that I had really about the types of things that people come to, to you about, particularly when you're talking to, because I know you've spoken with a lot of entrepreneurs and health professionals as well. What are some of the com common problems and, and, and issues that they raise with you and ask, you know, for your advice? 
there are two things. One is the performance anxiety. If I've got an exam to take, I know everything. I have practiced, I've revised, I've gone through all of these skills. However, when someone is sitting there judging me, my threat system triggers extensively and I now can't remember the things I need to do and my head is full of the wrong stuff and my body feels awful. So there's that very specific issue that I tend to see people for. Entrepreneurs, I often see for burnout. So again, they're usually highly intelligent perfectionists, high ambitions, will do everything it takes to achieve what they want to do, often without the support systems that you might have in a larger company. And they're doing too much at the same time, feeling too much pressure and they burn out. And the other issue I tend to see with medics is it's probably more of that transitions element. So I find there's a certain group who are a certain age as well, I guess, who were really, really clever at school, liked science, and it was just normal that that meant you went into medicine. Oh God, you're describing me. <laughs> so especially if you've had family members who do medicine. Again, true. <laughs> yeah. And so, so it becomes a thing of the clever kids at school that like science, particularly if mum or dad or uncles and aunts were in medicine, you go, into, you go to medical school. That's kind of the path that's mapped out for you. And you did well and it's really respected and, and it feels like that's where you're supposed to go. And then you get to a certain point in your career and people start to question it. Of like, did I want to do this or did everybody else want me to do it? Did, am I choosing my own path or did somebody choose this path for me? And there becomes kind of a bit of an existential crisis of am I doing the right thing? And I find it fascinating because often I'll get an inquiry call from a doctor who says, I'm in this position, I need to find my motivation again, I need to get my oomph back. And we'll start talking and they're like, I don't know if I want to do this because I might end up realising this isn't what I want to do. I'm like, yeah, that, that is an option. That might be what you realise. And often I won't hear from them again because that's a really scary thing to admit that you've spent years and years training for something and it wasn't right for you. And you've invested and you've probably, probably got quite big student loan fees and all of that stuff and go, oh, have I done the right thing? So some people I will never hear from again because they're like, I, I don't want to go down that route. It's too risky. I don't want to know it. I want to block it off. But other people will really start to explore that. And it might well be that they stay doing what they're doing, but they really find the elements they love the most and they try and do more of that. Or we work on how do you find a different purpose because your purpose doesn't need to be connected to your job. I think I'm really, really lucky in that mine does, but only because I guess I talk about this stuff all day, every day. So it really makes you think about what is my purpose? What do I want to have left behind when I move on? Um, if your purpose is, and your path has always been mapped out for you, you haven't got a genuine purpose. And that is really difficult. How do you go to work every day, particularly if you're working in the NHS and it's not particularly well funded and you're having to make very difficult decisions and you're exhausted and burning out and all the other stuff that goes with being in sometimes a toxic environment? 
if you haven't got a reason to be there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very sobering, isn't it? And I, I think everything that you're describing is is exactly is exactly the kind of journey that I went on myself, essentially realizing that. I think I think quite I guess the difference for me was that I I realized quite early on um in medical school that it probably wasn't for me but I was so comfortable in um school and I felt that um I I guess I had that a bit of completion bias towards like I need to see this thing through and um and I wanted to see what was on the other side and and even went through that kind of thing like oh maybe you don't have to love your job which um, I think is a fair position for some people, but maybe not for me personally. But I, I think what stood out to me was just how you describe people who get in contact with you and perhaps then don't want to go any further because it could just be, it, it's a dangerous thought to have that actually I've, I've put so much time and effort into this thing. I've invested so much of myself. And um, I guess the interesting thing that I thought of was just how, you don't want to get in a position where you start to distrust all of the decisions that you make. And I definitely went through a process of, you know, I, I already made this choice and I wasn't happy with it. Am I able to make a choice again? Can, can I trust myself or do I, do I have the confidence that I can make decisions, good decisions for myself? And um, I've had to go through a process to, definitely of, um, of building that confidence in my kind of instincts towards what I want to do, essentially. Yeah. I think values can really help with that. So I have five questions that I work with clients on when they're trying to make decisions. So do I have capacity? Do I actually have the time to do this thing I'm being asked to do or I want to do? Do I have capability? Could I develop it? Like, is this within my realm of doability? Um, And then the really important ones, will I enjoy it? Because actually, if we've been gifted with an intelligent brain and... If if you've been able to get into medical school, you've got a brain that's going to allow you to have lots of options. You might as well find one you're going to enjoy. We don't have to, we don't have to do things that we hate just to be valuable. Um, And then it's, will this help me meet my purpose in some way? And does this meet one of my values? And I've certainly had experiences where I have said yes to opportunities because I was flattered. It, it really helped my ego to say yes to something. And then I hated the process of doing it um, and didn't enjoy it. And I looked back and I was like, I wasn't the right person to do that. Didn't really have the capacity. I was doing it at three o'clock in the morning to squeeze it in. Didn't meet any of my values. Didn't help me move my purpose on. Didn't enjoy it and wasted six months on something and now I'm supposed to go and promote it or something and there's just no motivation to do so. Whereas if you can answer yes to at least two or three of those elements, then go for it. But it really helps us make better decisions because we can see why we are doing something. And even if it's difficult, we know that there's a decent reason for doing so. Wow, that is, I think that is really, really helpful. Um, yeah, definitely. I've, I've thought about frameworks for making decisions. And I, I think the, be- the best thing that I have found, um, and I think that they work, it actually works well with what you've described, these five kind of questions, is um, just like not planning 
planning out my whole life <laughs> or trying to simulate my whole entire life. I did. I definitely went through a phase of, you know, with every choice that I wanted to make um, with regards to my career, I'd be like, where will this lead and what will happen after that? And if, if I could simulate something wrong going or me not being happy with certain, with a certain thing, then I just shut down the whole thing and it just cuts off so many options for you. I, I, I know we we've um, we've touched on so much already, but I, I really wanted to focus on you know carving a path and the tools that we need to be able to do this. And I have done a little bit of reading, as you, as you know, I'm, I'm no sports psychologist like you, but I've done a bit of reading around around sports psychology and some of the kind of major themes in in this area. And one of them is something I know you're not crazy about is this idea of mental toughness, <laughs> which is just this kind of umbrella term for resilience, persistence in the face of pressure, self-belief, even when we've had setbacks, which I heard of this, I heard of the term, I thought mental toughness sounded a, a bit odd, but I thought all of these things are really relevant if you are striking out on your own and you're now pivoting away from the path that you were following or that was laid out before you to one that you're choosing for yourself essentially. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you term mental flexibility, which is a great alternative to mental toughness and how we can develop this if we are going off the beaten track and we're facing new challenges and uncertainty. Mental toughness to me feels like, I know some of the cheesy memes you get on Instagram and someone who's just taken their shirt off and it just doesn't feel like it has real substance behind it. And it feels really unhealthy regarding well-being. So it's this idea that you're kind of, you're just going to smash your way through whatever's in your way and you're going to achieve it. And that's not life. That just ends up with some well-being issues down the line. What I really love is the idea of mental flexibility. And it comes from the approach I use in sports psychology called ACT which stands for acceptance and commitment therapy. It feels kind of the difference between CBT and ACT. So CBT is like, we've got an issue. We're going to tackle it. It's very aggressive. And it, it sorts out one thing at a time. ACT is much more about changing your overall mindset to dealing with life. So that flexibility comes because you're not fighting everything that comes your way that isn't exactly the way you want it. You're learning to sit with it. You're learning to listen to it. You're learning to change the conversation in your head. So you still get what you want and you're still moving towards the purpose that you've set yourself, but in a far less aggressive way. So one of the examples I use that's very sports specific, um, but probably crosses across to other bits of life too. I often work with the, the very intelligent perfectionists who struggle with performance anxiety. I am not a perfectionist. I'm, I'd call myself a pragmatist. Um, I will do the bare minimum to get away with what I can get away with. I need to be more of a perfectionist. Something that often comes up for the very intelligent pragmatists is we get quite lazy. We will do the bare minimum because our threat, threat system, our safety seeker in our head is going to tell us how to take it easy. Don't push yourself. Why would you push yourself when you can get, why do 100% when you can get away with 80? So I, my safety seeker, it's called Lazy Larry. Lazy Larry lives in my head and it's, he's constantly telling me, take it easy, slow down, do that later. 
very relaxed about you'll get away with it you wing it you always do you don't have to do that prep and when I notice lazy Larry popping up so that might be oh I'm doing a workshop on Monday a really big one with lots and lots of people I've done the slides but I haven't done the prep and lazy Larry would be like that's all right you can wing it do it on the tube on the way there whereas actually me the person with values of bravery and of validation and who's got a purpose to help very intelligent perfectionists reach their potential, I actually know I need to do the prep. Or when I'm racing, I do lots of 10K racing at the moment. I get to about seven kilometers, lazy Larry will pop up in my head. Oh, you don't need to push this. Why don't you take it easy? Who cares if you finish? It's good enough you've done 7K. Why push it more? I then have my values. One of mine is family. I do not want my daughter to think you quit when stuff gets tough. I want her to know that if things get hard, you push harder. That really matters to me that she doesn't miss opportunities because she's lazy like me. So you can really use those things about I'm noticing these thoughts. They're not me. They're just thoughts and they belong to this safety seeker. And I'm noticing them, but that's not who I want to be. And I understand why I'm noticing them. And I understand that my safety seeker wants me to be comfortable. I don't want to be the kind of person that's comfortable. I want to show my family how to be a better person. I want to be a good role model for my daughter. I want to be brave with the things I do. So I'm going to do it anyway, even though there's part of me telling me not to. And I will be proud at the end. So I have a process I work with on people like that. But I love the flexibility because I can use exactly the same processes for sport as I can for building my business or for helping other athletes. So... Um, I think that flexibility of, yeah, I have unhelpful thoughts. We all do. There's nobody that walks around with like, I mean, they might be quite unwell if they have constant positivity. It's that kind of toxic positivity. You can do anything. We can smash this. Very unusual. Most of us have some kind of ongoing commentary in our head and a lot of it is unhelpful. And rather than trying to pretend that doesn't exist, I find the flexibility to sit with it, to notice it, but to do things anyway in the service of our values and our purpose means we can achieve much more. It kind of bleeds over the, the two things, mental flexibility and motivation, I think are really stroke, strongly tied together. Is that, is that kind of your approach, generally speaking, when people come to you feeling quite low on energy at the time or low on motivation, even though they know there's something that they need to do? Yeah, so with performance anxiety, that group of people tend to actually be overmotivated. So they often need to pull back in a bit of like, well, what's, because if you're overmotivated and you've set really high goals for yourself, you're going to be constantly disappointed. Um, I was talking about a well-being gap if you're a perfectionist. So you've set a bar really high of where you would like to be. You're never going to reach that bar because you will either get close and raise the bar so there'll always be a gap. Or you've set it so high at perfection, which doesn't exist, you'll never get there. So when there's that gap, constantly beat yourself up. I should be better. I should be able to achieve this. I should have already done this by now. And you start beating yourself up. And that makes you feel rubbish. So with that over-motivated group, we actually spend time really celebrating successes. Every success you have, I'm like, that's brilliant. What are you going to do to celebrate it? The negativity bias in our brain means we need about five positive things to start to balance out the negative ones. 
we need to really make sure if somebody's achieved something that they recognize it and they do something that makes kind of that memory stamp in their brain of like, not just that I got that promotion or I won that piece of new business. It's like, and I did this to celebrate it because that matters. So we start to have those steps that we can see. Um, so there is a group of people that we don't need to be more motivated. They might need to be more motivated to look after themselves and to give themselves a break and some self-care, but they don't need to be more motivated to perform. They've got that bucket loads. But then there are the pragmatists who do need more of that motivation, who do might need that, that little kick that says it's not good enough just to finish. What was the point of training for six months for something if you're not going to try and be brilliant at it? And there's two, two routes we tend to use for that. So one is to, to beef up motivation. That's why I always think when people are doing like the marathon for the first time, doing it for charity is so helpful. Um, because if you've got the names of people on your arm that you might be helping with the money you're fundraising, you're not going to go slower. You're not going to stop because you have to do it for others. So that can be really powerful. Um, but motivation can get maxed out. I could give you a million pounds to run the marathon. And unless you're already a millionaire, you're probably going to do it. It'd be worth it. But two million pounds wouldn't make that much difference. So we will always max out motivation at some point. And then the goal is to reduce the perception of effort. Make things feel easier. So in sport, we use tools like caffeine, smiling. It's really beneficial. It makes your brain think what you're doing is easier. Um, chunking things down into small sections, doing things with other people. Um, and some of those bits translate over into business and medicine too. So if you're, you've got a big project, it's like, I can't do this. It's too big. It's too much. If you could break that down into 30 minute chunks, then suddenly you're like, I'm just going to do 30 minutes. And actually you probably find you get into it and you've done three hours, but it really, really helps to chunk things down and often have a little goal for each of those chunks. We tend to split goals into three areas. We have outcome goals. They are the big, exciting things, the, the things that make your tummy flutter with excitement. They're like, oh, I'd love to do that. But they're also the ones that are most uncontrollable. So in sport, that might be, I would like to win this race. So it'd be amazing. But also, even if you're a brilliant runner, there might be somebody else that's even more brilliant that rocks up. And it doesn't matter how much training you've done and how hard you've done they take that from you. So that's a really hard goal to have. So we like them for motivation, but they can also be a bit paralyzing because they stop us in our tracks. We freeze when we, we're there because we, we realize it's out of our control. So we tend to break outcome goals down into performance goals. So it might be if I wanted to win that 10K, we would break it down into, well, let's look at the last few years. What time did it take to win the 10K? Right, we're going to train to go just under that time. So it gives you something more specific. And then even if you don't win, you'll still have moved forward. You might still have got a new PB. You'll still feel like you've done something substantial. And then we break down that performance goal into process goals. And process goals are the things you need to do, the tasks and the action in order to get that time. So you might look at it and go, right, I need to do at least a track session every week with some really hard intervals. I need to sort out my nutrition. So I'm going to book a session with a nutritionist. 
I need to work on my mindset so that laps X, Y, and Z when I normally start to slow down, I can push harder. So I'm going to do some sessions with a psych. So you'd really pull apart that I want to win a race into, well, how do I win a race? And then even if you don't get the performance time you're after, still learn loads of new stuff. You're still proud of the fact you did everything you could to get there and you will be a better runner because of it. We can do that in any part of our life. Yeah, that's incredible. I can I can definitely see how, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was a medical student, for example, and I was, um, you know, studying for exams and such. I never really, for myself, I would never be like, I want to be the person with the best result here, but I would, you know, focus instead on um, just getting my best essentially. And, and I think that really helped me to do well. Cause I think I would have been crushed if I had been like, I need to get the best result every single time. Thank you so, so much for your time. I have learned so much already in just this short period of time. I wish that we could talk some more. I just want to ask you one last question. I know at the moment that you have a book that is coming out soon, which is called The Ten Pillars of Success. What I tend to ask people on the show is just to imagine that they are the dean of a university and they can influence the curriculum in any way that they see, see fit for students who will become future healthcare professionals or health tech professionals. So what would you want them to learn from this book that you're putting out that would help them to lead more fulfilling and impactful careers? So the 10 pillars of success is um, 10 characteristics that really help us be successful in life. Some of them we're born with, hopefully, and most of them we probably have to learn. So there's things like confidence and courage and gratitude and a sense of belonging. Um, and, and each chapter brings it to life through somebody that has developed characteristics like that. So Dave Kelly Holmes talks about belonging. Bobby Holland Hunton, who is a James Bond stuntman, he talks about courage. So they really bring those things to life. The one chapter I would love university deans to, to really read and understand, I think, probably be purpose. And it, it's illustrated by a guy called Sean Conway, who's an adventurer. And he became an adventurer because when he was 30, he was South African and his goal had always been to be a National Geographic photographer. He'd come over to the UK and that was his thing. That's what he wanted to do. And at 30, he found himself running a business, taking school photos. And he'd had that moment of, this is not what I planned. But he sold his business, I think for a pound, bought a bike and decided he was going to set the record for cycling around the world in the fastest time possible. And halfway across America, he got hit by a car and was in hospital. He was very lucky. There was a British doctor working over there and him and his wife kind of took him in, really looked after him and got him back to health again. And this thing was like, well, what's the point? I can't achieve the time record now. And then he really started to think about, well, what's my actual purpose? And his purpose was actually to explore more of the world. He's like, oh, I could do that bit of it. And he got well and he set off and he did it. And he does these amazing adventures. I think the more we can think about purpose, and why we're doing things, the more powerful. Um, and there's one final story in there that I really love. is a guy called Damien Hall, who is a runner. And um, he wanted to do a route called the Pennine Way. And that was 268 miles 
from somewhere in the middle of England to Hadrian's Wall. It's a long route. We wanted to set a new world record for it coming out of lockdown. What matters to Damien is that he leaves the world a better place environmentally for his kids. It's his absolute purpose. And so when he designed the route and how he was going to do this record, he only ate vegan food. It was all in compostable wrappers. The paces he had were picking up litter along the way to leave the world a better place as he finished it. He asked people not to come and support him because he didn't want them driving and making excess fuel. He wrote FFF on his arm in massive letters, friends, family, and the future. So every time he wanted to stop and rest, he looked down, he saw FFF, he carried on. I think he only had 20 minutes sleep in the something like 61 hours that it took him. And I mean, amazing challenge. And um, he set a new world record by three hours. And it gave him a platform afterwards to go and talk about the stuff that really mattered. And he's written books about the environmental impact and how runners can, can be better environmentally. And I really think that purpose fueled him. And if we get to understand our purpose whilst we're still young and in university, we can go off and do amazing things. And we don't have to follow the path that's been set out for others, even if we follow maybe the professional path, we can do it with our own purpose in mind. Why was I put here to do it? I think that can, could really help people make each of their worlds their own. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with everything that you said. I think that it is the, the key to unlocking the best of ourselves, essentially, and to keeping us going on this, you know, really long journey that we call life because there is there are going to be ups and downs and if we if we know why we're doing what we're doing it really helps us to get the way the whole way through so thank you so so much for your time again really appreciate it thank you for listening to this episode of brand new doctor i hope it inspired you in your personal journey check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links and if you enjoyed this 